Welcome to the inside. This was the week we were all grateful for a healthy box office performance by the top Hollywood movies. And at midnight on November 29th, tickets for the latest Marvel movie, Spider-Man No Way Home, went on sale, crashing domestic movie ticket sites. This kind of excitement has not been seen at the box office since 2019, when advanced tickets for titles like Avengers Endgame and Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker went on sale. I am Jim Chabin in Los Angeles, and with me is our co-host for this series, Wim Byans. He serves as CEO of Senionic, and he joins us live from Brussels, Belgium, where it's evening. Good evening, Wim. Hey, good morning, Jim. Good to see you. Wim, the news at the box office was hopeful. Disney's Encanto uh, animated film did $40 million in the domestic box office. That's a little bit down from uh, Coco a few years ago. But overall, James Bond, No Time to Die, is now at $758 million. They think it's going to, at one point, be a billion-dollar movie. F9 is still doing well overseas, $739 million. So there is a a real sense that that market, the the movie fans, are ready to storm the box office this, this holiday season. But at the same time, we're going to have to manage these microbes. Yes. Can we do both? I think we have to learn doing it, Jim, is my view, right? I think we're going to have to learn with this rather than think it's going to get completely out of our lives, uh, sadly. And I think this is a good you know, test, I would say, uh, when uh, people want to go out, people uh, will have to be more cautious, and I think will be also. But at the same time, we cannot stop the clock, right? And I think that what I see right now is also governments here are much more prudent in in just pulling back and, and trying to really make sure that life can continue. But I think we have to. Um, this is um, this is something we're going to have to learn to live with and going to have to conquer by, I think, changing our behavior rather than expecting it just to, to disappear. Well, if you're a manager, you're heading into this time of year, putting your budgets together for 2022, and you're talking to your teams about how to integrate all of these factors into your plans. And uh, technology is going to play a huge role in enabling everyone to to get through this. So today's conversation really is about looking ahead at 2022 and how to think about how to use technology. Can't agree more, Jim, right? So with that, I think we have our perfect guest with us here today to speak about the future. Phil McKinney is the president and CEO of Cable Labs. In his role, he heads up research and development of innovative new technologies which find their way into millions of homes around the world. He's also the host of the national radio program, Killer Innovations, and the author of the book, Beyond the Obvious, the killer question your company should be asking. Welcome, Phil McKinney. Wim, Jim, thanks for having me. Phil, thanks for, for joining us here. So let me, um, let me kick it off here. Uh, it has been a disruptive year around the world, right? I think 2020 was, but I think we continued in 2021. How would you describe the current state of affairs into media and entertainment industry? Well, I think if you look at what people were doing over the last year and what we're already seeing into well into 21 and going into 22, you know, we've seen a big jump in entertainment and content consumption occurring in the home, but also on mobile devices. The mobile traffic was way up. Broadband traffic was way up. In fact, uh, we saw a jump of about 50% in total downstream streaming content consumption 
right out of the gate in March and April of uh, last year. And it's kind of been flat. If you look back over the last six months, it's been somewhat flat, but still at that elevated level. So I think from the standpoint of people getting comfortable in consuming content and taking advantage of those broadband capabilities, um, I think that will continue. You were talking before about you know, people wanting to storm the box offices and go and get into the theaters. I think we're seeing that in all walks of life. People are looking to get out of their homes to get back in. We're humans. We're, we're social animals. And it's theater creates that social experience. You don't get that so same social experience sitting on a couch that you get when you go see a big film. I went right. recently with my daughter and son-in-law to see the new James Bond film at an AMC theater in, uh, in back in Colorado. And you miss that, that yeah. social interaction, hearing the reactions of the people around you. You can't recreate that in the home. It's something yes. people are missing. No, we, we can't agree more on that one here. How do you see the future where cable streaming cinemas, will they all survive? And will that be part of the consumer spending habits? Or do you believe that some of those will decline in the next couple of years, five years, or will to the opposite accelerate? How, how do you see that? Well, and I want, I think the consumers have always liked their ability to get content when they want it on the device they want it. So I don't think, you know, streaming or the ability to, to consume that content is going to, uh, is going to change how they get it, whether it's a traditional video package from a cable operator, or it's a streaming service from, you know, Disney Plus, Peacock, Prime, you know, people want to get their content when they get the content. I think the challenge today is, is there's so many streaming services. The one complaint I hear from consumers all the time is, is I know the name of the movie, but I don't know what streaming service it's yeah. available on, right? So people get confused. Oh, I want to watch this movie. Uh, well, is that on Netflix or is that on Prime or is that on Peacock or is that on, you know, and trying to find their content, the navigation. I want to watch this show. Where do I have to go to watch it? That's the big, the big hurdle. In fact, though, in the cable industry, and I'll use, you know, one of our, one of our members that funds cable apps, Comcast, Xfinity, they've integrated all of those services. So when you go in and you do a search on, on X1, which is their in-home platform, it tells you, you want to go find this film and says, oh, that's on Prime or that's on Netflix or that's on Peacock or that's on Vudu, or that's on, you know, whatever. You don't have to think about where it's at. So I think the role of cable, where it curated all of this content, I think curation across the streaming services is another opportunity. And I think that's what consumers are going to want. They still want the content. They just can't find it. It's too frustrating to find the content today. We all witnessed the amount of content created right during the 90s which have caused an explosion in the number of cable channels. Now, when we look at it, there's an stunning amount of content being created. We had the Skywalker Summit, which you know Jim organized in the Advanced Imaging Society, and it was amazing to hear the people talking about they don't have time, you know, enough in the day, you know, to create the content and how busy the schedules are. So, question I'm asking myself is that. Is this, I mean, today even I would say there's more content even than the need for streaming and theatrical uh, exhibition. 
are we on the point that the content production is sustainable to keep on growing that way? Or are we plateauing? Uh, will we get an oversaturation? Or what's your view on that? I agree that we've seen this absolute explosion of content. But what is interesting in our studies and our analysis, the amount of time people spend consuming content is pretty high, right? It's still, and it's been pretty flat. You know, we haven't seen any kind of decline. People want content. And when you look at, okay, we went to 400 channels on cable, you know, in the 90s, 2000s, right? And people are going, you know, look, I, I flipped through my 400 channels and still couldn't find anything to watch. So I think, you know, finding the content and finding an audience, I think the question is, is relative to the cost to create the content, is there a large enough segment interested in that content to maintain a business model? You know, but when, go back to the example, you know, in, in, in Jim on, the, on Dune, right? Watching Dune in a movie theater, you know, Fantastic. you are not going to, I don't have... I do not have a big enough wall either here on my bus or in my home to recreate that Dune experience that, that the cinematography on that film is just absolutely breathtaking. And it, it was just all consuming. It sucked you into the, the whole story. So I think breaking down that content as to how big of an audience can you target and, and sizing and scaling your production costs to the audiences, I think is where it's going to happen. But niche content still is has pretty big niches that it can satisfy, and still be you know very viable for uh, for the content creators out there. Now, Phil, if you had a chain of movie theaters asking you for ideas or ways to think about the year ahead or the next five or ten years, what would you tell them? What 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 advice would you give our listeners? I've seen a number of theaters around the country who uh, have gotten pretty creative on, you know, the use of their space, right? So rather than thinking about it just purely as a movie theater, it's really an experience space. So how do you transform or create different kinds of experiences? And we've seen it, you know, where corporations will rent out a theater for a, a corporate event or something like that. But I think there's some even more interesting or maybe some experiences I've never even thought of that could be uh, delivered inside of the or created within the theaters. The obvious challenge that the theaters are going to face is, is how do you do that safely? So the, the movie theater industry is, is clearly needing to be very agile and, and very flexible. But the key that I think is, is look, it, movie theaters are unique in the, in the form of the social experience that can be created. So finding ways to create a unique experience that can really be enjoyed in a theater that cannot be recreated in the home or recreated over a streaming platform, you know, like Netflix or, you know, Amazon Prime or uh, whatever. Um, I think we're going to see new kinds of content. I think the, the content delivery infrastructure is going through some major uh, significant upgrades. So I think staying up on the technology, staying up on what's coming next on the technology experience, uh, new kinds of projector technologies are, are coming uh, online. Wynn would be much better equipped to talk about those than me. Um, in fact, I'm going to have to ask, I'm going to have to beg Wynn to get a get a, get a free tour for Barco because I have I've, I've kind of out of touch on my my latest Barco information. Happy to do that. <laughs> Wynn, question for you. We had a recent conversation offline with Brad Bird, the director of uh, Mission Impossible yes. Ghost Protocol, and and uh, Ratatouille and 
we asked him about what his experience in the movie theaters. He said he just seen Dune and thought it was absolutely a beautiful, oh, beautiful movie. Absolutely. And I said, well, why'd you like it? And he said, because I thought I was taken on a trip somewhere in space. I didn't think I was watching visual effects, right? I, I was moved and the picture was terrific. And I said, well, what advice would you have? And he said, well, the picture, what they're doing with the visuals and the sound of the visual effects is fabulous. The lobbies need to be rethought. Now, that's something that you've mentioned in the past, and that is from the front door of the theater until you get into the to the actual cinema projection uh, hall, you walk through a lobby that has not changed a lot in 100 years. What are your thoughts about updating that? Well, no, it's a good point, right? I think that there's the, the economics, which is probably the, the biggest hurdle, but I think creativity will have to overtake that, I would say, right? Looking at it from an innovative point of view. The, the thing, and also that, that was what Brad also mentioned there, the showmanship is critical, right? And I think we need to get back in more showmanship. When you get into the theater, you have to get into a different world, which I would say the Disneyland's and the Disney worlds of, the, of today does one hell of a job on that, right? When you get into the gate, you get into a different land. I think theaters has to be like that too, I believe. And it starts in the lobby and, and many lobbies are huge. So there's a lot of opportunity to do so. So I think we, we, um, we, we need to get the cinemas back on their feet, right? From, you know, cash generation and, and the great content today is, is definitely going to help that. But it is one of the, the, the big things. How do we get, how do you get in that experience? How is the journey from A to Z fantastic? And also afterwards and also the social media around it and the whole, the whole journey, right? So there's also an offline and an online journey on this. I think that that's really where, where I think the big grabs is. We're going to have to find a creative way, I believe, to be able to do that economically viable, right? That's going to be the challenge uh, looking at some conventional technologies, which we're looking at today. But I always say technology always, you know, we'll, we'll get there, right? <laughs> Just, you know, uh, that's a question of time. But I think the showmanship, we probably can do something short term, which already helps uh, bringing people in, in a different state of mind and accelerate that idea from it's fun, it's out, it's it's social. Uh, and I'm already into the story, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and, and when I think you bring up a great point, right? There's some technologies you can do. And you know, the point about the, the lobbies and Never, not having been touched, right? You know, what's the whole history of uh, movie posters, right? You're going into the theater and the movie posters are static. Yes. And how many times do you stand in front of a movie poster going, wow, that looks really good. I need to remember when that movie, because it's, you know, it's a coming soon. Well, when that movie comes out, I want to make sure I see it. Well, then as soon as you leave the theater, you forget. Yes. Right. Yeah. You know, and they've done QR codes where you try to take the picture, but most people don't even take advantage of a QR code. Look, I have my AMC app already on my phone, right? Because right. I got to keep track of my AMC points. So I get my free popcorn. They know I'm there because I've got my phone in my pocket. Let me touch the screen and say, well, we'll let you know, or we'll give you a 10% discount on the opening night tickets or whatever, right? It's closing. You know, when you, when you think about what's happened with COVID, with people being able to do things like drive up, pick up for your food, uh, the dig digitization of industry has been so critical. Digitization of the entire experience for the movie theaters, I think, is is one area that, that they that they can and should take advantage of. And there's lots of elements to make that happen that aren't really all that expensive, but can transform the experience. But you're touching a fantastic point here because I think that one thing's what COVID did it it forced us to I think accelerate thinking more digital right so I think we right. we had to catch up in some parts of the world I believe to be more in this digital transformation 
And I think the cinema world is going to have to catch up in a big way because, of course, yes, maybe you have a digital projector, but that's not thinking digital, right? That's not using right. it to its extent. And that's just one element. But I think from a ticketing to the lobby, and we see also that the mobile devices is the way into what people want to use, right? And it's in, in the safety you know, a palm of your hand kind of thing rather than touching whatever other machine. So so I think that there's a great opportunity there for us. Our guest today is Phil McKinney, CEO of Cable Labs and the author of the book, Beyond the Obvious, the killer questions your company should be asking. We'll be right back. The Insiders is proudly presented by Cineonic. Cineonics future-ready enhanced services and technology solutions provide compelling cinema experiences, peace of mind, and financial flexibility. Today, with more than 95,000 projectors installed globally, cinemas around the world trust laser projection by Cineonic to power the next generation of moviegoing. Visit Cineonic.com today and discover why theaters look to Cineonic to provide the solutions of tomorrow today. Our guest today is the CEO of Cable Labs, Phil McKinney. Phil, what new technologies have you encountered that excites you for the consumer experience? Well, I think from the consumer experience, you know, we're obviously, you know, all the new devices that are, that are coming out, mobile devices, continue to be the, the big thing that people are carrying around um, and then uh, are experiencing. The one, though, that I've been in you know, been a fan of for, for quite some time. And we probably have got five years of research into this at, at Cable Labs is Lightfield. You know, if you look at what companies like Lytro have been doing and, you know, Cable Labs, we actually help stand up the ideas standards organization around the format for Lightfield content and how that's going to get delivered and streamed. So a Lightfield display that gives you that true volume metric kind of an experience no glasses required but really making you feel like you're there in the film not a, a, a voyeur but actually in that film experience we think is is pretty compelling we did a big demonstration for a bunch of government regulators um on light field with some new light field content and uh it was it was pretty eye-opening to watch people who've never seen it before Phil, explain, explain to our listeners how, how to imagine what Lightfield is. It's hard to imagine. I mean, we get into all the science of the fact that we're capturing literally thousands of views of an object or of a, of a live scene or a scene being shot for a film. It's, it's, again, it's one of those ones that's hard to explain, but it's what we call volumetric or 3D, but 3D without the glasses. It allows you to literally move your head around, and as you move around, the image changes. Just like if, if we were all sitting in a room together and I moved my head around the table to look at you two, I would see a different view of you as I moved around. So it makes it feel like it's you're all in the exact same room and everything is live. Bob Petty of NVIDIA was our guest last week, and he yep. talked about the Omniverse. Right. And saying in 10 years, within 10 years, we will all be meet. We can be together virtually. Mm -hmm. Right. Is Lightfield a part of the technology that's going to enable that capability for you and women and I to sit in the same room? virtually? Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and Lightfield, the, the key is, is the camera technology. I mean, in fact, I think there's an article today from on someone showing the new Lytro version two camera. Well, it's like 
two and a half, three feet wide by three feet tall, right? Not something you can stick on the top of your laptop for a, for a Zoom call yet. But Moore's Law is a great thing. That thing will get down to a foot and a half next year. It'll be down to nine inches the year after that. We're down to four inches the year after that, right? So you get another couple of generations of technology innovation. You'll get it down to a size and a package and a cost that literally you will be sitting in your living room your grandmother is sitting in her living room and you two are sitting on the couch having a conversation side by side as if you were both physically in the same room. We visited our, our member colleagues up at Samsung up in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And one of them said offhandedly something along the lines of we have to embrace the idea that we are probably entering the end of the cell phone era. 20 years from now, we won't be looking at our phones, right? So do you agree with that? And what replaces the the iPhone that I carry now? Well, I mean, if you think about it, I've been I've been in the mobile industry since the uh, late '80s. So if you think about everything from the old brick phones to you know the uh, StarTac from Motorola to the first of the of the uh, pseudo smartphones to the iPhone, right? We've seen those progression, right? The ability to consume content optically, though, is a human preference. If you think about it, our audio nerve in our ear operates at about a T1, about one megabit. Our optic nerve is a gigabit, and we have two of them. So that drives why, as humans, we tend to be so much more visually oriented, right? We look, we're looking for that experience, that consumption of information, whether that be driving or reading a book or watching a film, or whatever, right? We tend to want to preference our swing towards that optic. So the question is, is what's going to what's going to replace the display? And I think it's going to be more uh, part of, you know, getting in better. You know, I wear glasses, so do my, you know, my picture for my frames for my glasses when I go, supposedly every year, but it's more like every two to three years to get my eyes tested and get a new pair of glasses. Do they just become inherently just embedded to be part of the glass frame? In fact, this time around, they were trying to sell me frames that had audio built in, Bluetooth audio built right into the into the glass frames. I think we're going to see those kinds of things where it just becomes an inherent wearable that we just always have with us, rather than being a you know a secondary device that we slide into our pocket or lay on a table or for, or in my wife's case forget it someplace, and then we have to go do a search to, to help her try to find her phone. Wim, uh, how many people do you, does Barco Cineonic, how many people are in that workforce? And it's it's global, correct? Yeah, that's right. It's around 3,600 people today, right? Um, as as Barco, the, the group, holds today. So, and yes, that's global. So yes, we are, I think we have more than 90 countries. So, yeah. And how do you view the work from home if, if this variant continues to, if we continue to see these kinds of situations, how do you lead those employees in, in the way they think about doing their work? Well, I think it, it's, um, it's interesting because it forces ourselves to think different, right? So we talk about a lot about asynchronous communication, how we use um, video-based messages, how we 
use um, you know video calls in, in, a, in a different way. We normally would bring people together, rally them around something and talk about it. Now we need to brainstorm being on, on Zoom, right? Now we need to and have, have a whiteboard with us and have still being in a theater watching at a screen all together, which you know is hard to do. But but so I think there's still this human touch needed when we want to get people in and, and convince them about a different you know viewing, a different showing and with different projectors or screens or in, into the cinematic environment. Then the face-to-face -face is absolutely you know, needed, but but that's maybe a one-time meeting you're going to have now, where beforehand maybe you had three or four meetings, right, rallying and up to that. So I, I see us being being more careful with that moment then, um, and I think internally I, I see people getting more creative, and so we're learning. I would say I think we're definitely not there, but we're learning also as managers uh, and and how to navigate the company uh, in this. But one thing is for certain, people will continue and people will find ways. I think that's what we see. So hey, when I got, I've got, I'm gonna jump in here. I'm a podcaster, yes, so I get to, I get to ask my own question. So when are are your are are your offices reopen? Are employees coming back, or what's your office policy? Yeah, so so we were, you know, depends where we are around the world, right? So people are coming back to the office at the moment. We are back a little bit at a at a rhythm of of one day a week in the office here, okay. uh, where yeah. before it you could be, you know, let's say uh, three days in the office. So so we we back to one day. So it's go a little bit up and down, but that, that's roughly where yeah. we are. So people have a chance, but selective. And then we're choosing those moments to have people which want to be able to talk together, be there at the same time in the office right. because you want to interact uh, rather than just being one day there. So so people getting controlled, I would say, planning it more uh, than before. I think one of the challenges we have, we've not been able to solve this. And, and look, Zoom's been a sponsor of my podcast radio show for eight years. So I've known Eric Ewing for a long time. But one of the challenges that Eric and I talk a lot about is, is the serendipity effect. When you're walking around the office and you happen to run into somebody at the cafeteria or, you know, when I, at HP, when I was involved in the studios and I'd be on those studio lots a lot, you'd run into somebody in the cafeteria to have a random conversation that you wouldn't sit down and initiate an email on, but just the fact that, you overheard something or you have that conversation or you see something in the moment. But if you don't have that in the moment, you miss out on that serendipity effect. And that is one key input to the creative process. And they, we have not solved how to recreate that or create an alternative to that serendipity effect. What do you make of the future of business travel or these the, the tradition of the big trade shows, uh, every industry has them. Las Vegas Convention Center was built to accommodate hundreds of thousands of people. You know, that's a hundred-year-old kind of tradition. How do you see that? Well, I, you know, for us, I mean, for instance, in the cable industry, we have our annual Tech Expo. It was supposed to have been in October in Atlanta. We canceled it um, because of COVID. You know, the the rules, different rules, different parts of the country just made it hard. International travel was very hard. But I, what's happening behind the scenes, though, are all of these show organizers are getting together. And I, I think hopefully where the direction goes is, is that there are fewer shows, but there are more of the industry shows that come together. Find the shows that have kind of overlapping audiences and bring them together once a year rather than you've got to go to four different shows. I got to go to NAB and I got to go to 
you know, IBC. See, and I got to go to Anga in Germany. And I got to go to Tech Expo in the U.S. And I, you know, bring them together. Can we, you know, yeah, okay, Las Vegas is probably one of the only few places we can do that at or, or Amsterdam or Tokyo. But, you know, that way then people kind of, rather than doing, you know, if you're in the, well, if you're in our space, in the entertainment space, you're doing Tech Expo, you're doing IBC, you're doing CES, and um, show you know, east and show west for the cinema cinema con. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. right. You know, and it's it's interesting because you know we took over SCTE, so it's a subsidiary now of Cable Labs. They run the uh, Cable Tech Expo show, which is the largest cable show in the world, um, and. That team, we're getting called all the time by other smaller shows saying, hey, can we partner with you and can we just co-reside, meaning a show within a show? So transform it from being the Cable Tech Expo show to just call it the Acme show. And there would be be sub-shows inside of it because I think people, I think the days of people wanting to be on the road 30, 40 weeks a year just is not going to happen. Describe to us, how does innovative company, what do they do? And what do they do well versus other companies, in your opinion? Well, companies that are highly innovative, that, that are constantly have a, you know, can repeatedly deliver new kinds of innovations and technology is, is really about creating a culture of innovation, a culture within an organization that encourages things like risk-taking, like transparency, collaboration. Uh, removing that that fear of failure, right? Innovation requires experimentation. And look, experiments fail. You want experiments to fail. If you're not failing, then you're not trying. Mm, And so therefore, uh, being able to take out that fear, right? There's just a natural human reaction, right? But how do you take out that fear of failure where People actually will try an experiment. They have a crazy idea. You try it. It doesn't work out. And therefore, then, you know, what is it uh, we can learn from that? How do you have successful failures is really the question. Not just failures, but successful failures. What did you learn from it? What did you uncover? And maybe that drives you to maybe change that idea slightly to go in a, in a slightly, you know, different direction, right? If you think about, you know, the content space and, and new technologies, right? And, you know, how many iterations of shooting 3D film with uh, James Cameron and uh, the DreamWorks team, et cetera, happened to figure it out. We tried something, hmm, eh, not quite right. Let's try this. Oh, that didn't quite, you know, that's all part of the process. So, so you, you mentioned about failing, but but successful failing, right? So, so what, what does it mean in your opinion? What is successful failing versus failing and not successful failing? Well, an, an unsuccessful failing is you just fail and then you just go off and you just do something else. Successful failing is you ask yourself, did I really put it all in or was this kind of a half-hearted thing? Did I fail because I didn't put the, I didn't commit the resources to it? Because there's lots of reasons things will fail. If you really committed to something and it doesn't work out, the next question is, is what do I learn from it? What is it that, why did it fail? Why did it not work out? What is it that got revealed in the experiment that should enlighten me to think about what's the next experiment? I should be doing. And then the third question is, is, is there a pivot? Can I take this idea and just slightly turn it a slightly different direction and find a new path 
for it. Otherwise, you're just doing these little, you hit a wall, throw it out, hit a wall, throw it out. And therefore, you might, you're might you just as good just to do random projects yes. yeah. without any strategy at all versus how do you have a, a, a methodology to go through your failures and learn from those and be transparent. One of the biggest challenges for failures is nobody wants to stand up and say, yeah, guess what? I failed, right? And there's actually now a conference in Silicon Valley called FailCon. And people stand up on stage and share their biggest failures. I did a workshop for the CEO at Vail Resorts in Colorado, biggest owner of ski resorts. And I had every one of the senior executive teams from Vail take turns during, after each break over a three-day workshop to stand up and share their biggest career failure. What's the biggest failure they had? Because we needed to convince the rest of the team that says, wow, the CFO had that kind of a failure and they still became CFO. What do I got to worry about? My little failure is not going to be as bad as that failure. Right. It's about taking that, 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 that concern that people are going to look negatively on you. We've got to take that out versus teaching them to experiment, try things and be willing to fail. So ingenuity is not replaceable. And on that we want to thank you so much for coming on, Phil. This has been an absolute joy. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Wim. Thank you. Our quote of the day comes from Sanjeev Chahil, former head of marketing at Apple. He says, quote, product innovation is a prerequisite of building great brands. And Phil McKinney's questions are a prerequisite of building great products. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Wim. Happy holidays, everybody. Thanks for listening. The Insiders is presented by Cineonic and produced by the Advanced Imaging Society in Hollywood. Our executive producers are Adam Castles in New York and Mike Pilsecker in Los Angeles. Brett Harrison produced today's show and our technical director is Matthew Bach Lombardo. This is AIS.